Time for another QuackCast. This is the 107th QuackCast, a review of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine. One of the many components of my growing multimedia empire, available at edgydoc.com. I have given up on the preamble, so let's get right to the meat of the matter, shall we? The title of this particular QuackCast is 780.6. You can tell what a doctor does for a living by the ICD-9 codes they have memorized. There is an ICD-9 code for nearly every medical condition, and we need to submit an ICD-9 code in order to get paid. Weightlessness is 994.9. Must be there for NASA. I have yet to see a weightless patient. Decapitation by guillotine is E978. There, I suppose, in case Marat returns from the dead. And there is an ICD-9 code for the initial visit after being sucked into a jet airplane, V9733XA, and one for subsequent visits, V9733XD. Why do I suspect that V9733XD has yet to be used? Evidently, there was a person who got sucked into a jet airplane and survived, so he did need follow-up. 780.6 is my personal favorite. Fever. All my patients have fever. And 780.6 was certainly the first ICD-9 code I committed to memory. I thought it should be 986, but that's just me. I have an endless interest in fever. And I thought it would be good to toss in my two cents worth about all the misinformation about fevers. I would like to remind my listeners that I am an adult infectious disease doctor. That's who I treat, not necessarily how I behave. And unless specifically mentioned, all that follows applies to those who can legally drink, vote, and serve in the military. 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. It is not normal body temperature. Well, it is, but it is not. 98.6 as average body temperature is an enduring medical myth. In 1868, Karl Reinhold August Wunderlich published, here's where I get the German mispronunciation wrong, Das Verhalten der Eigenwormen in Krankenheiten, The Course of Temperature in Diseases. That was the definitive text on human temperature. Wunderlich was one of the first to recognize fever as a symptom of disease rather than a disease in and of itself. As only the obsessed of Victorian times seem to do, and see the professor in The Madman, an account of how the Oxford English Dictionary came into being as another example, without a spreadsheet or a Texas Instruments handheld calculator, he averaged about a million observations from 25,000 subjects and came up with 37 degrees centigrade, or 98.6, as the average normal temperature. The book is available on the interwebs, and it almost makes me wish I knew German, after having read Mark Twain's The Awful German Language, which is laugh-out-loud funny. I have always shied away from learning German, plus I prefer French food. There is an English translation on the interwebs, however, for those who are interested. Because of his book, 98.6 became medical dogma, enshrined forever by a red line on a mercury thermometer. My children certainly knew the importance of that red line. If the mercury went past it, 
they did not have to go to school. Uh, mercury thermometers. Endless fun breaking them open as a kid and playing with mercury. Didn't do me any harm, even though the phrase mad as a hatter came from the mercury neurotoxicity found in hatters. Kids today, with their electronic thermometers, they will never know the fun of trying to vacuum up mercury spilled into a shag carpet. Well, Wonderlick did suggest that 38 degrees, 100.4 Fahrenheit, is the upper limit of normal. His equipment, while the best for the time, fell a wee bit short by modern standards. They were about a foot long. They took about 20 minutes to equilibrate under the armpit, not rectal, and were miscalibrated by as much as 1.4 to 2.2 degrees centigrade, 2.6 to 4.0 Fahrenheit, higher than today's instruments. Unfortunately, his 400-page epic, while verbose and an interesting read, is based upon slightly inaccurate tools. So, what does modern thermometry add to the concept of human core temperature? Well, in 1992, Dr. Makoviak did an analysis of 700 baseline oral temperature readings in 148 healthy men and women, and he found there was a range from 35.6 to 38.2, that's 96 to 100.8, a mean of 36.8 plus or minus 0.4, 98.2 plus or minus 0.7, a median of 36.8, 98.2, and a mode of 36.7, 98.0. Mean, median, and mode, I never remember those. Whenever I have to help my kids with their arithmetic, I always have to look them up. Quote, the mean maximal temperature varied from a low of 37.2 at 6 a.m. to a high of 37.7 at 4 p.m. So people are 98.6 twice a day, once on the way up and once on the way down. Age did not significantly influence temperature within the age range study, 18 to 40 years. Women had a slightly higher average oral temperature than men. You can make your own inappropriate joke about why women have higher temperatures. Black subjects exhibited a slightly higher mean temperature and a slightly lower average diurnal temperature oscillation than white subjects. These differences approached but did not quite reach statistical significance. End of quote. Oral temperatures for smokers did not differ significantly from those of non-smokers. Cigarettes will not heat you up. The big two exceptions being ovulating females, but not ovulating males, will be relatively warmer in the morning and on those who work a night shift, who have shifted their normal variation by 12 hours. People use the temperature elevation in the morning for birth control, and we have a phrase for those people in medicine. Parents. As best I can tell when I quiz them, most medical students are taught that 98.6 is normal temperature, an observation that's supported by the literature. Quote, 75% of 268 physicians and physicians in training surveyed offered 37 degrees, 98.6, as their definition of normal body temperature. Only 4% specified a particular body site of temperature measurements in their definition. Although 98% believe that body temperature normally varies during the day, 
there was not a consensus as to the magnitude of such variability. There were also considerable disagreements as to specific temperatures defining the lower and upper limits of febrile range. Subjects exhibit a clear preference for the Fahrenheit scale in their responses. End of quote. As do I. Fahrenheit's the real temperature. I don't need this metric stuff. But so much for knowing about a so-called vital sign. But it could be just as likely that they were given the correct information in medical school, but did not overwrite a lifetime of misinformation. People tend not to respond to new information by changing prior held opinions. Not knowing what normal temperature is does have occasional consequences. Every couple of years, I see a patient who takes their temperature in the late afternoon, and what do you know? They have a fever. Their temperature is 99.9. They check the temperature every day, and every afternoon it is around 100. That's greater than 98.6. So they see their doctor, who also thinks it is a fever, and they begin a fever of unknown origin evaluation. Blood cultures, lab work, CAT scans. Thousands of dollars are spent, and of course it's all negative. So the patient is sent to me, and I explain normal physiology to them. From a practical point of view, I start to worry about fever when they have a temperature above 101, especially hospitalized patients if they have more than one elevated temperature. The height of the fever and the pattern of fever is usually of little interest. There are a few exceptions unless you are a homeopath who look at every variation of fever possible. They find fever burning heat night after midnight to be different than fever burning heat night 3 a.m., which is different than fever burning heat alternating with chill, which is different than fever burning heat alternating with chill with chilliness. And they include fever after sexual intercourse, which I did not even know was a possibility. And there is, to my mind, no such thing as a low-grade fever. Like pregnancy, either you are or you are not febrile. Either you have an abnormal temperature or you do not. And there's the occasional person who insists my normal temperature is 97, so 98.6 is a fever for me. There is nothing in the literature I have ever found to support that assertion, and I wait for the first well patient to consistently have normal temperature that is lower than the usual variation. They're always within normal range when I see them in clinic. It is really quite remarkable how tightly normal temperature is regulated. And 98.2 is the optimal balance between caloric requirements and keeping most germs at bay. Being above ambient temperature is an important defense as most organisms cannot grow well at 98.2, much less 102. We present a minimal parsimonious model to account for the cost of maintaining a high body temperature in mammalian organisms. A body temperature of 36.7 maximizes fitness by restricting the growth of most fungal species relative to its metabolic costs. End of quote. Being warm-blooded is important to keep us from becoming compost. Quote, the paucity of fungal diseases in mammals relative to insects, amphibians, and plants is puzzling. We analyzed the thermal tolerance of 4,802 fungal strains from 144 genera and found that most cannot grow at mammalian temperatures. 
Fungi from insects and mammals had greater thermal tolerances than did isolates from soils and plants. Every 1 degree centigrade increase in the 30 degree to 40 degree range excluded an additional 60% of fungal isolates, implying that fever could significantly increase the thermal exclusion zone. Those bugs that can infect and kill us have probably evolved to deal with those higher temperatures. And our ability to have a fever may be part of why we dominate instead of dinosaurs. Quote, given that most fungal species grow best at ambient temperatures, the high body temperature of endothermic animals must provide a thermal barrier for protection against infection with a large number of fungi. Fungal disease is relatively common in birds, but most are caused by only a few thermotolerant species. The relative resistance of endothermic vertebrates to fungal diseases is likely a result of higher body temperatures combined with immune defenses. Protection against fungal diseases could have been a powerful selective mechanism for endothermy in certain vertebrates. Deforestation and proliferation of fungal spores at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary suggest that fungal diseases could have contributed to the demise of the dinosaurs and the flourishing of mammalian species. And I thought it was the cigarettes. And there may be something we should watch so we do not go the way of the dinosaur. Quote, the relatively high resistance of mammals has been attributed to a combination of a complex immune system, boy is it ever, and endothermy. Mammals maintain high body temperatures relative to environmental temperatures, creating a thermally restrictive ambient for the majority of fungi. According to this view, protection given by endothermy requires a temperature gradient between those of mammals and the environment. We hypothesize that global warming will increase the prevalence of fungal diseases in mammals by two mechanisms, increasing the geographic range of currently pathogenic species and two, selecting for adaptive thermotolerance for species with, with significant pathogenic potential but currently not pathogenic by virtue of being restricted by mammalian temperatures. End of quote. So we probably evolved endothermy in part to keep the microscopic world at bay. We can make it even harder on the organism trying to kill us by increasing our core temperature. Every animal that can raise its temperature, will raise its temperature in response to an infection. In the case of lizards, by moving to environments with increased temperature. Although, that's only applicable to Fox News analysts. And it is estimated that the febrile response is ancient. Quote, A febrile response has been documented in vertebrata, arthropoda, and annelida. I guess those are Greek gods. These observations suggest that the febrile response evolved more than 400 million years ago, at about the time evolutionary lines leading to arthropods and annelids diverged. End of quote. Although how they estimated that number, I am uncertain. I doubt they went back in time in a DeLorean and took a rectal temperature in Tyrannosaurus rex, since with those four legs, they could have not taken their own oral temperature. Maybe one of Wonderlick's foot-long thermometers would have worked. There are numerous beneficial physiologic effects that occur as part of the febrile response. 
Virtually all aspects of the physiologic response to infection are, dare I say it, boosted. And many wings of the immune system function better at higher temperatures. I feel the naturalistic fallacy creeping over me. Fever is an almost universal response to infection that evolved millions of years ago and helps enhance the response to infection. So, suppressing a fever during infection should be bad, right? Well, this becomes a little less clear-cut. There are issues as to how fever is suppressed, for example. Is it mechanical, like ice or alcohol baths? Pharmacologic, such as aspirin, steroids, acetaminophen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen, all of which have effects on physiology that go beyond suppressing fevers. And what infection is occurring? A response that has evolved to, say, infections found on the plains of East Africa could be counterproductive against diseases of modernity like Pseudomonas sepsis in the ICU or MRSA endocarditis in a heroin user. And all that glitters is not gold. All who wanders are not lost, and not all who are febrile are infected. Many pathological processes will increase temperature, so perhaps it is non-infectious fevers that require antipyretics. And of course, who is having the fever? An otherwise healthy child? An adult with poor physiologic reserve from congestive heart failure or severe emphysema? Somebody with a new stroke or heart attack? Different fevers for different reasons in different people. Which of these factors is involved makes the literature on treating a fever a little less clear-cut, and there is a question as to whether treating a fever is of harm, causes benefit, or does nothing. Or are all the outcomes even clinically relevant? When you read the literature, depending on the population studied, you can find all manner of interesting consequences of treating fevers. For example, ICU fevers. A review of the issue suggests, quote, as I do this podcast, I notice that my voice gets higher and higher. It's no wonder I get called ma'am on the telephone on occasion. Anyway, quote, observational studies of ICU populations have reported associations between fever magnitude and patient mortality. Especially recent findings indicated that infected patients may significantly benefit from temperature elevation while high fever may be maladaptive in non-infected ones. Aggressive antipyretic treatment of ICU patients has not been followed by decreased mortality in randomized trials. However, fever suppression and return to normal thermia improved outcomes of septic shock patients. Aggressive fever treatment with acetaminophen lowers temperature in the ICU by a whopping 0.2 degrees centigrade compared with routine fever management. There was no harm to the patient as a result, but another suggests aggressive acetaminophen leads to increased mortality in a surgical ICU. The increase in mortality is a more consistent finding in the literature. Quote, for aggressive versus permissive, they get to drink and watch R-rated movies, antipyretic treatments, a reduction in the mean daily temperatures favored the aggressive group with a trend towards higher mortality for aggressive treatment. But it may depend on whether the fever is associated with sepsis or not. In non-septic patients, high fever, independently associated with mortality, 
without association of administration of NSAIDs or acetaminophen with mortality. In contrast, in septic patients, administration of NSAIDs or acetaminophen independently associated with 28-day mortality without association of fever with mortality, end of quote. As in another study, post-op fevers worsened outcome in an ICU, but, quote, there was a trend towards a protective effect from an infectious etiology of fever, end of quote. And whether the fever was prolonged or not is important. Quote, the mortality in the group with prolonged fever was 62.5%, compared with 29.6% in patients with fever of less than five days duration. A highly significant difference. End of quote. So, treat a fever in the ICU? Depends. Probably if non-infectious, but the effect is not clear-cut given the heterogeneity of patients studied. Overall, I tend to lean against a fever treatment. How about, since we're in the middle of influenza season, influenza and fevers? Quote, in animal models, treatment with antipyretics for influenza infection increases the risk of mortality. There is no randomized placebo-controlled trials for antipyretic use in influenza infections in humans that reported data on mortality and a paucity of clinical data by which to assess their efficacy, end of quote. Although there is some data to suggest that antipyretics prolongs the course of influenza A, it has been suggested for example, that aspirin was partly responsible for the increase in deaths in the 1918 influenza pandemic, although I must emphasize not due to the antipyretic effect. In 1918, the U.S. Surgeon General, the U.S. Navy, and the Journal of the American Medical Association recommended use of aspirin just before the October death spike. If these recommendations were followed, and if pulmonary edema, a complication of high dose of aspirin, occurred in 3% of persons, a significant proportion of deaths may be attributable to aspirin. End of quote. The multifactorial effects are one of the problems with pharmacologic interventions of fever. NSAIDs, for example, may make pneumonia worse. Quote, of 90 patients... 36% had taken NSAIDs prior to hospital referral. Compared with non-exposed patients, they were younger and had fewer comorbidities but similar severity of disease at presentation, despite a longer duration of symptoms before referral. However, they, the people on NSAIDs, more often develop pleuropulmonary complications such as pleural empyema and lung cavitation, had a trend towards more invasive disease, had a higher frequency of pleural empyema and bacteremia, especially in those not having received concomitant antibiotics, end of quote. Now, whether that was due to a delay in treatment or an immunosuppressive effect from the NSAIDs or both is uncertain. And aspirin increases mortality in streptococcus pneumoniae infections. Quote, a two-fold increased risk of mortality was found with aspirin treatment in animal models of strep pneumonia infection. However, there are no relevant human studies. End of quote. But whether this is due to effects on fever or on other parts of the inflammatory response is not known. 
and antipyretics may make the common cold worse. Quote, 60 healthy volunteers were challenged intranasally with rhinovirus type 2 and randomized to one of four treatment arms, aspirin, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, or placebo. Use of aspirin and acetaminophen was associated with suppression of an antibody response and increased nasal symptoms and signs. A concomitant rise in circulating monocytes suggested that the suppression of antibody response may be mediated through drug effects on monocytes. There was no significant difference in viral shedding among the four groups, but a trend towards longer duration of virus shedding was observed in the aspirin and acetaminophen groups. End of quote. And aspirin prolongs shedding of rhinovirus in other studies, although by what mechanism is not certain. But how about fevers? I mean, you want to get your kid back to school, right? So you don't have to stay home and take care of them. Well, certainly the use of antipyretics can help resolve the fever and make the child more comfortable. But is it at the benefit of making the child better faster? Probably not. As an example, acetaminophen does not make chickenpox symptoms better and may prolong the disease. And I would advise against this naturopathic treatment of fever unless you want to make sure you sleep alone. Quote, Onions sliced and placed in a wool or cotton socks and applied to the feet. It is also recommended sliced onions in a bowl by the bed. It is believed by the irremediably gullible that the onions have the capacity to draw out fevers. <clears throat> and these people want to be primary care providers. This is by no means a comprehensive review of the risk and benefits of treating fever. Outside of comfort to the patient, I cannot find a consistent benefit of treating infectious fevers. The preponderance of information suggests treating infectious fevers is almost always detrimental. Whether to treat fever with chilliness from putting the hands out of bed or fever after sexual intercourse, as per the homeopaths, well, there are no reliable trials for guidance. While there may be non-infectious reasons to treat fever, stroke, and CNS injury as examples, all the information suggests that treating a fever is probably counterproductive, with the caveat that in the ICU, that the hemodynamic effects of fever may be worse than the potential complications of antipyretics. As in all acute illnesses, you need to do a careful consideration of the risks and benefits of treating a given patient with a given therapy, not the automatic attempt to keep everybody euthermic. That being said, when my boys had fevers as a child and it was my turn to stay home, I did not treat the fevers. I think the bulk of data suggests that treating fevers in children is a bad idea, and the fever has the added benefit that the kids are quiet and I could get some work done. They lie there watching SpongeBob, and every once in a while you'd hear, Dad, can I have a popsicle? If you treat the fever and it goes away, they become active and you can't get anything done. Plus, odds are, if you let them have a fever, they'll be well a day sooner. Then my wife would take her shift and the kids would get Tylenol. As the French would say, no one is a hero to their butler. Not that my wife is my butler, but you get my meaning. 
And that ends the 107th QuackCast. Don't forget to go to edgydoc.com where you can find my growing multimedia empire and links to my blogs and my books and my apps, etc., etc., etc. And of course, you need to go to iTunes and write me glowing reviews. Otherwise, see you next time. Bye-bye and bye bonds.